0: you're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit stonegate.church. Okay, so today we are in our fourth sermon in a set of sermons called Jesus and Joy, and we are just plowing right through the book of Philippians, kind of verse by verse, uh, going through these four chapters together. And today to kind of get us uh, to the place we're gonna be, I wanna start with a quote from J.I. Packer. It's gonna take me just a second to lay the groundwork that I want you to see uh, verses 27 through 30 through. And so we're going to start here. J.I. Packer, he says this. It seems beyond question that we believers do not think often enough or hard enough about the culture of our congregations, about the ethos, the vibe, the feel of what our congregations are like. Culture, a word borrowed from sociology, means the public lifestyle that expresses a shared mindset and convictions held in common. A church's culture should be orthopraxy, that's behavior, expressing orthodoxy, that's doctrine. A church's culture should be orthopraxy, expressing orthodoxy. It should look like self-giving love for others that in turn reflects the sacrificial love for us of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. So he's saying in a church, there should be gospel doctrine. And that that doctrine should then be producing a gospel culture, a way of living that reflects that doctrine in a church. And it starts with doctrine. You you can't get around the importance of doctrine in any and every church family. This is where it all starts. And and the great indicatives of the New Testament form sort of the gospel doctrine of the New Testament. The indicatives are these statements of facts, these statements about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Those indicatives contain in them the good news of Jesus that, that William Tyndale said makes a man's heart glad, makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. There's really no news like it, that there is no news as good as the good news of Jesus, that an all-out, absolute, holy God would look upon broken and rebellious sinners like us, and rather than crushing us, would come for us to rescue us. That God the Father would send his son, Jesus, to live perfectly in our place. And on that fateful Friday, 2,000 years ago, Jesus, God's son, would allow himself to be pinned to the cross for our sin in our place, absorbing for us the very wrath from God that our sin deserves. And on the third day, he would be raised from the dead, showing God's power over Satan's sin and death. So that now, every human being, any human being that would turn to God and come to God With the empty hands of faith, knowing that the only thing we bring to to God is the sin that makes our salvation needed. That we would come to God with the empty hands of faith, hurling our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All who come to God like that are rescued from God's wrath. And they're rescued to the welcome of God. They're now in the family of God forever. For the rest of eternity, God the Father rejoices over them as sons and daughters of his. That's the good news of Jesus. That's the gospel doctrine that we find in the New Testament. I love how my friend Ray Ortland describes the gospel. He says it this way. Gospel doctrine, here are three statements to sum it up. We're all idiots. That's the humbling part. We're all idiots. We have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. And anyone can get in on this. That is the good news of Jesus. That's the good news that William Tyndale said makes a man's heart glad, makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. So can I just start by reminding us this morning that if you're in Christ, hell, wrath, God-forsakenness, judgment is no longer in your future. And god witness heaven, the welcome of God, the eternal rejoicing of God over his sons and daughters— that is in your future. I, and church, can we, just be, can we just be freed up to celebrate that and be refreshed by that? That that is what's in front of every son and daughter of God in this room, that sort of incredibly bright future. Now, what J.I. Packer is saying, though, is that that doctrine should create a culture in a church, that gospel doctrine should create a gospel culture. And that gospel culture is what a church is. That The gospel culture is what a church is, where the incredibly great doctrine can be experienced, celebrated, and enjoyed together. So, so gospel doctrine, maybe you can think of gospel doctrine like this. Unspeakably great things happen to unspeakably bad people. That, that gospel doctrine should create a culture called the church where unspeakably great things happen among themselves to just an, an unspeakably bad people that that doctrine should be creating that sort of a culture the doctrine of forgiveness should be creating a culture of forgiveness in a church the doctrine of mercy should be creating a culture of mercy within a church the doctrine of hope that incredibly bright future should be creating a culture of hope in a church and that culture of hope not just the doctrine but that culture of hope proves that Jesus really is the one who saves sinners it convinces the world around us that Jesus really is legit that he really does change people's lives, that this really is a legitimate thing. Now, here's the problem though. We can't assume that because we hold our gospel doctrine that we have a gospel culture. We can't assume that just because we hold these doctrines with, with all sort of like sincerity and reverence that we also have the culture to match it. We have to stop and think about that. We have to honestly look at our church. We have to, to honestly examine our culture. And when you think about a culture of any place, our church, um, there's a lot of ways to talk about that. I think one of maybe the most simple, helpful ways is just to think of it this way. Culture is what most people do most of the time. What most people do most of the time. So if doctrine is what we believe, culture is how we're living. It's what most of us are doing most of the time. And it's possible to hold the doctrine all the while having the doctrine divorced from a culture, forsaking the culture. Now, if you want an example of that, Revelation 3 shows an example of a church who held the doctrine dearly, but just divorced it from the culture. They had all the right sort of theological boxes checked. They had their doctrine down, but somewhere along the way, they had divorced the doctrine from the culture. So when Jesus comes to them in Revelation 3, the church in Laodicea, he says this to them, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot, Now, that's interesting. He's not addressing them on the level of doctrine. He's addressing them on the level of culture. They had their doctrine, you know, it it was down. Their doctrine was right, but somewhere along the way, they had lost their desire for God, their childlike wonder of God. That the wonder of who Jesus is for us had died and shrunk and shriveled in their hearts. So he goes on, verse 17: For you say that I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That the problem wasn't what they believed doctrinally, but what they had become personally. That was the problem in Laodicea. Now, Stonegate. It's just, it's a good, humbling thing for us to know that we are not immune from that. That that every church is prone to holding their doctrine dearly all the while forsaking the culture that should match the doctrine. Now, Now think about Revelation 3. Why is it that Jesus had to come and say these things to them? I know your works that you're neither hot or cold. Why did he have to do that? Here's the reason. They couldn't see it themselves. Right? That, that's the hard thing about culture. Culture becomes so, uh, it's tricky because it's so, it's so a part of who we are and ingrained in kind of the normalcy of what we do that it's hard to see. See, that, that, that's the tricky thing about it. It's not just what we see out there, right? Culture is like the glasses that we see through. And when it's the glasses that you're seeing everything through, it makes it particularly hard to see that, because it's like the glasses just kind of mirror, you know have a mask over everything out there so we need to take the scripture seriously we need to read the bible and then ask hard questions does our culture match the beauty of this doctrine is our culture adorning The gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way where it's making it look as beautiful as it really is. Every church needs both gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And the watching world around us needs churches to embrace both of those. Both the doctrine and the culture that should match the doctrine. Listen to Francis Schaeffer describe how the watching world needs a church embracing this. He says it this way. The final problem is not to prove men wrong, but to win them back to Jesus. Now, I love that. See, our goal in the world is not to say, hey world, you're wrong. No, it's to introduce men and women to Jesus in a compelling way. That's what we're trying to do. Reconnect people to the one who made them, the one who can rescue them. The final problem is not to prove men wrong, but to win them back to Jesus. Therefore, The only ultimately successful apologetic is, first, a clear intellectual statement of what is wrong with the false doctrine, plus a clear intellectual return to the proper scriptural emphasis in all of its vitality and its its relationship to the total Christian faith. So he's saying, first thing, if we want to introduce people to Jesus, we've got to have our doctrine right. A doctrine that can show what's wrong and what is right. The doctrine has to be right. But then he goes on. Here's the second thing we need. We need that doctrine plus a demonstration in the life of people, plus a demonstration in the life that this correct and vital scriptural emphasis meets the genuine needs and aspirations of men in a way that Satan's counterfeit does not. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying if we wanna win people back to Jesus... You need both gospel doctrine that can clarify what's wrong and what's right, but you also need gospel culture that can demonstrate visibly in the lives of people a compelling picture of the beauty of what's right. You need both the doctrine and the culture. I love how my friend Ray Ortland describes this. He says it this way The test of a gospel centered church is its doctrine on paper plus its culture in practice. It's both. You can't be a gospel-centered church and just hold the doctrine. To be a gospel-centered church, you have to have the doctrine on paper and the culture in practice. And here's the great thing. When you look at the scriptures and you look at church history, here's what we can know. He goes on to say, when the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, the church will be powerful. And don't we want a powerful church? If we want a powerful church, we've got to hold our doctrine dearly, and we've got to make sure our culture is compelling. Both of those two things are needed. Now, this is exactly where Paul is pressing us. He's he's grounded everything he's about to say in gospel doctrine. And having grounded everything in gospel doctrine, in the book of Philippians, by the way, the word gospel is used per capita, per, per word count, more in this book than any other book in the New Testament, right? So it's grounded in gospel doctrine. But having grounded it in gospel doctrine, he is now pressing us on to look at our culture, He's saying, does the culture match the doctrine? Do these things go together? You've got your doctrine right now, but is your culture compelling and beautiful? Now think about what kind of where we are in the letter. Paul is writing a thank you letter. This is Philippians. He's writing a thank you letter back to the church in Philippi. They've, they've taken up an offering to meet his needs and he's thanking them for that. So in verses one and two, he greets them. In verses three through 11, he expresses his deep affection for them. His, his love for this particular church just gushes out of verses three through 11. In verses 12 through 26, he gives a personal update. He wants to catch them up on how he's doing. And then when you get to verse 27 of chapter one, all the way through verse 18 of chapter two. That section of the letter is really the the heart of the letter. It's the core of the letter. And in this section of of this letter, he turns toward exhortation. He is now looking at the Philippian church and saying, there's a few things I need to communicate to you that I want you to know, that I want you to be thinking about. And that's where you pick it up in Philippians one, verse 27. Paul says this, only, only, let your manner of life, the way you're living, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's saying live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's his point. Live worthy of the gospel. Like what a statement. And In a lot of ways, this is the grid through which Paul wants us to see every moment of our life, every decision of our life, does it adorn the, the, the beautiful doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does it make the gospel of Jesus Christ look beautiful, as beautiful as it really is? Is what we're doing, what we're about to say, does it reflect the beauty of the gospel? I love one translation. It says it this way. Just one thing. I mean, Paul's saying, hey, before we go on, before we talk about anything else, make sure we get this right. Just one thing. Only this, live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying, don't just fight to make sure your doctrine is clear. Press on to make sure your culture is compelling. This is where he's he's taking us in verse 27. Now, let me clarify. Paul is not saying here in this verse that we need to earn our worthiness before God, that we need to earn our acceptance before God. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is grounded in gospel doctrine. Gospel doctrine is everything needed to earn your worthiness and acceptance before God was done in the life of Jesus. So there's nothing you're ever going to do that's going to make you more more worthy before God, more accepted before God, more loved by God than what Jesus has done. So everything needed for that has been accomplished by Jesus, gospel doctrine. But now he's saying, let's think about the culture. Let's press on to make sure your lives now look like the beauty of that doctrine. Let's make sure that now our culture is compelling. Now, when, you're at, when we begin to ask the question of like, okay, so what does a life like that look like that reflects and, and shows the worthiness of the gospel? In some ways, every New, New Testament imperative, every command in the New Testament is showing us something about what it lo- looks like to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel. It's giving texture and shape to what it looks like to do that. In, in verses 27 of chapter 1 all the way through 18 of chapter 2, that is Paul saying, let, let me give you some pointers on that. Let, let me show you what it looks like to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he starts out that, that, this sort of a stretch of a passage from 127 to 218, he starts out with three things in these couple of verses. He starts with three things. Here's what it's gonna look like for you, church in Philippi, to live worthy of the gospel. Let me start here with these things. Verse 27, these three things. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here's the first thing he tells the Philippian church. If you want to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel, live worthy together. Live worthy together. This is the first way you do it, live worthy together. Now in saying that, Paul is picking up on one of his primary themes throughout this letter and it's the theme of unity. So look at the language here. Paul says, I I, want to hear whether I come and see you or if I remain absent. Here's what I want to hear about you, church in Philippi. I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. I think the spirit there is referring to the Holy Spirit, the precious gift that God has given us to indwell every son and daughter of his to empower them in a life of godliness. I want to hear that you stand firm in one spirit, arms linked together. I want to see and hear that you're doing that. Then he goes on with one mind striving side by side. that This is Paul looking at the church and saying, I want you to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you do that by living as one body, as if you're one team formed by Jesus and for Jesus. So, so now live like that, as one unified body. G- gospel doctrine is, in Jesus, God makes us a family, a one, one body called the church. So, so now here's the culture. The Philippian church now live like one body. This is how you express a culture that reflects the beauty of, the, of gospel doctrine. This is what it looks like to put that into action. Now, why is Paul saying this? <clears throat> why is this the first place he goes to illustrate for them how it is that they could, they could live in a way that would be worthy of the gospel? Well, I think the main reason is because the Philippian church was struggling with unity. Division had begun to cre- kind of creep into the Philippian church. And you, when, you think about, when you think about discord or division or disunity in a, in a church, it, it exists on a, on a spectrum, on a scale. So on one end of the spectrum, you might think extraordinary division, extraordinary disunity. And if you want to think of a picture of that, think of the Corinthian church. Now, if you have read First and Second Corinthians, you know that is one messed up church, right? I mean, that church... That church has some problems. So when Paul comes and he corrects them, he does so in a very harsh and pointed way. And he does that in a harsh and pointed way because their division was so bad in their church that it actually threatened the very existence of their church. He's looking at that church thinking, this division is so bad, this church may fragment and, and actually break apart. Their survival is at stake in how they handle this discord and strife. So he comes and corrects them accordingly. Now that's one end of the scale, extraordinary disunity. On the other end of the scale is, you might think of like more of your garden variety disunity and division. And if you want a picture of that, think the church in Philippi, that they would be a good illustration of more the garden variety uh, version of, of discord. And you see this pop up throughout the book of, of or about, throughout the letter. In chapter two, verses one through 11, uh, Unity is the theme. And it's obvious in these, that passage that there is self-centeredness that has crept into the church, creating discord and, and division. There's conceit that has crept in. There's pride that has crept in. And those things are breaking the church into factions, into these divisions. It's causing all sorts of strife throughout the church. In chapter two, um, later on, there's grumbling and complaining and a lack of gratefulness that has crept into the church in Philippi. In chapter four, uh, you know, I mentioned this in the week that we opened this set of sermons, and it's just, it's so ironic. There are two ladies in this mentioned by name in chapter four, and they're mentioned by name because they're fighting in the church. I mean, that's one way to make, make it into the Bible, right? My name is in the Bible because I can't get over this disagreement with this other gal, Right? But this is what you have in in this letter. You've You've got disunity. You've got these relational hardships. You've got division that has crept into this church. And regardless of how good your church is, I mean, the Philippian church is probably the most mature church in the New Testament. And it's showing us in light of that, regardless of how good the church is, garden variety disunity has to be fought against at all times. You can never let your guard down in any church for garden variety disunity. It's always gonna to try to be creeping in. Weeds of that are always gonna be popping up in a church. Now, why is garden level disunity always present to some degree in a church? What does it always have to be fought against? Well, think about the Philippian church. They are roughly 10 years old as a church plant when this letter was written. And a lot happens over 10 years, doesn't it? A lot happens. For, for this church, romanticism has turned into real life Remaining sin has broken in and broken relationships. People have sinned and people have been sinned against. The disappointment in the church have begun to mount for people. And Paul's looking at this precious church, this church that he loves so much, and he's concerned about their unity. Not in a, this church may not survive sort of a way, but in a, this church is not going to be as fruitful as God has made it to be if this this disunity exists. This church is going to miss their God-given opportunity to make their mark in their culture in this time and place if this discord and division exists in their church. You know, I've been in in vocational ministry for 15 or 16 years now. And, you know, I don't think it would be a stretch to say that if you polled pastors in any church, you just ask them the question, what is the most discouraging thing that you deal with in ministry? I think the number one thing that pastors would say is disunity. It's division in in a church. It's the discord that has a way of being sewed into a church. And it's one of the most disheartening things because so much sideways energy is given to it. Like rather than striving for the faith of the gospel, we're striving with one another. Like rather than striving for, we want to see people meet Jesus. I mean, there are people like going to hell all around us. And by God's grace, we want to be a church that's meeting them right there. Like our hands are around their knees, making sure that doesn't happen. We want to be a church about that, about that good work. We want to be a church that's making disciples, that seeing that the gospel formed in every area of their life through the power of the spirit. We want to see those things happening, but rather than doing those things, we're like refereeing the discord and disagreements. It's all that sideways energy that can just be so discouraging. And we know that if the Philippian church is going to struggle with that, that every church is going to struggle with that. We're going to struggle with that. And so what do we do when we're struggling with that? What do we do if you're struggling with that this morning, if I'm struggling with that this morning? Well, Paul shows us in Philippians 2. We're going to be there in a couple of weeks, but this is what Paul shows us he shows us that the road to unity runs through the valley of humility. It always goes to the valley of humility. You can't have unity without humility. It's the only way to have unity. Is for a church to continually be embracing humility. Philippians 2 shows us what unity requires. It requires a willingness to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who willingly emptied himself, who willingly lowered himself, all the way down to where when he looked at the world, he considered himself a servant of all. Unity requires us to go down, all the way down there. I don't know how many of y'all have seen the, the movie Miracle. How many of y'all have seen that? It's kind, of a, it's kind of old school. If you're new school, you might not have. I'm kind of old school. We bought it a long time ago, we still have it. My kids brought it out here recently, and I watched it again. And if you know the story, it's the story of Herb Brooks, he, uh, he decided to coach the, US, the USA men's hockey team for the 1980 Olympics. And if you kind of know kind of the story, uh, at that point, we only used college level hockey players. And so we're using college level athletes and you know a lot of the rest of the world is using their best athletes in that particular sport. And uh, so we've got our college level guys and the Russians are like dominating everybody. I mean, you've got these grown men that are just, I mean, they're really good. And if you know how the story goes, uh, we, get, we get this college hockey team, and Herb, over time, whips them into shape, and they beat the Russians, win the 1980 Olympic gold medal in men's hockey. But my favorite part of the movie comes about midway through, where he's got the team together, he's made the selections, and, but man, they're just not a team yet that there's all sorts of relational strife hitting the team. Uh, Nobody is thinking, how can we be a great team? Everybody's thinking about, how can I be an all-star individual? You've got that whole thing happening. And so there was this one particular game where they, I mean, they drastically underperformed. And right after the game, like the buzzer goes off, he grabs his whistle. People are still in the stands watching. I'm like, the game has just ended. He gets his team out on the ice and he starts making them skate sprints. Like they've got suicides going up and down the court. So it's, he blows the whistle, they, they hit one. He blow the whistle again, they hit another. He's just, I mean, it's like hours of this, o- hours of them doing these suicides. They're about to die. And in between each whistle, he, he would look at somebody on the team and he would say, hey, what's your name and where are you from? They would give their name, where they're from. And he'd say, who do you play for? And then they'd go on to name their college team and they'd blow the whistle again. They'd do another suicide. He'd ask another one, who are you, where are you from? They'd give their name, where they're from. And they'd say, who do you play for? And they'd name the college team just on and on and on, skate after skate after skate, up and down the ice. They are just about to die. He's about to blow the whistle again. And all of a sudden one guy stands up and says, my name is Mike Rusnione. I'm from Winthrop, Massachusetts. Who do you play for? I play for the United States of America. And it was just that moment in the movie, right? Where, where all of that disunity had a way of like dissolving in that moment. All of those preferences as a way of dissolving, all of those sort of relational pettiness things going on had a way of being overlooked and forgiven. And in that moment, there was this consensus around the team that let's stack our hands. We are all gonna be about the same goal. We're all gonna be about one thing and that is winning this thing. Now, church, how much more do we have a goal in front of us? How much much more sacred is the work that God has given us? The glory of Jesus, the salvation of men and women around us. How much more do we have a goal that we could all stack our hands on and say, Man, all of this relational pettiness that we have a tendency just to be so absorbed with, all of that can die for the sake of that thing right there. All of that can go away and melt in light of the the burning hot desire I have to see that thing accomplished. How much more do we have that in front of us? Has God given us a a compelling vision, a compelling hope to give our life to, that we would be a church that just... What we're so laboring for the, for the lost people around us that, that we would give our life to creating a traffic jam on the narrow road that leads to life. That we'd be a part of that. And before we go on, just in light of all that's before us over the next year, can we just pray for that? Just, just to stop and pray right now that God would, God would help each of us in this room fight for that. So God, would you do that in this church family? God, where where there is any discord, any strife, any division, oh God, would you help us? Knowing that if we allow that to linger, our fruitfulness will be at stake. If we allow that to linger, the beautiful things that you have for us are gonna be risk. So, oh God, help us take whatever steps would be appropriate today, today, to fight, proactively fight for unity. God, help me in that. Help help us as a church family not be willing to allow division and strife and discord to exist. Help us, oh God. It's in your good name. Amen. So the first thing he says, if you want to live worthy of the gospel, you do that by living together. Here's the second thing he says. To live worthy of the gospel means you contend for the gospel. We live worthy by contending for the gospel. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving, contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. Context, think Philippian church. They're hearing this and Paul knows, he's talking to a group of people that they're not favored in their culture. They were persecuted people, right? The world around them was hostile to Jesus and anyone that has sworn allegiance to Jesus. They did not like the followers of Jesus. And Paul's saying to, to that crowd, to, to that church, if you want to live worthy of the gospel, that means, that, that means striving and contending for the faith of the gospel. That means giving your life to see the gospel go forth, giving your life to see the gospel go, for it to advance for it to make its way into the lives of the people around you. Now, look at that word strive in verse 27. That pops up in several places in the New Testament, and it's typically given this athletic imagery in the scriptures. So, as an example of that, 2 Timothy 2.5 is one place that you see that word. And it says this in 2 Timothy 2:5: an athlete is not crowned unless he competes, contends, strives. It's that same word, unless he competes according to the rules. So think about what Paul is doing by using that sort of striving, competing imagery, that athletic imagery. Here's what he's saying. To walk worthy of the gospel is to fix your eyes on the spread of the gospel, on the advance of the gospel, on the gospel getting out into people around you. It's to fix your eyes upon the spread of the gospel and then apply the same effort, the same discipline, the same urgency of an athlete in reaching their goal. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to... I want you to take the good news of Jesus and the spread of it, the advancement of it, and to live worthy of the gospel means that you are applying the same urgency and discipline and effort that that an athlete would apply to his goal or her goal. You're applying that effort to getting the gospel out, to the gospel in your neighborhoods, in your workplace, among your friends. You're applying that sort of energy to it. Now, the opposite of that is also true. On the opposite of that, when we don't apply that effort or that, that sort of urgency to it, it's making the gospel look less valuable. It's making the gospel look like a cheap thing rather than a valuable, worthy thing. To live worthy of the gospel means, means in a lot of ways, we're embracing that we're athletes for the gospel. We're gonna apply that sort of discipline and effort to the advancement of the gospel. And I love what one pastor says, commentating on this passage, he says this, none of us will be measured in our athletic prowess against the decathlon powers of an apostle Paul or a William Carey or a John Wesley. We will be measured against what we could have done, not by what someone else could have done. Now, that's a refreshing and good thing for us to know, isn't it? You're not gonna be held accountable for what Paul could have done, but how God has gifted you and what you could do. And then he goes on. And we can all do something if we love the gospel of the glory of Christ. We can all do something, can't we? Whatever our something is, he's saying to live worthy of the gospel means we're doing that something. And isn't there so much at stake in this? Paul outlines what's at stake in verse 28. He says, it's either destruction or salvation for every person you meet. It's either destruction or, there's no middle ground. It's either heaven or hell, ruin or rescue. Isn't it a sobering thing to know that every person you bump into in your everyday life is an immortal soul? going to live forever either with Jesus or apart from Jesus? God, not a humbling thing, a sobering thing. Now Anytime we talk about evangelism or talking about Jesus with people around us, one of the things that I always fear is that the grid that we hear that through is I need to go like create a program in my life or like do an extra thing in my life. Like how am I going to fit that into my already busy life? Rather than thinking about it that way, what if you just thought about it this way? What would it look like for you to wake up every day and do your everyday life with gospel intentionality? That every part of your life is infused with gospel intentionality. Everything you do in your normal life, whatever your normal life looks like right now, you're just infusing that with intentionality toward Jesus. So as you practice hospitality, it's hospitality with an eye on how can I advance the gospel? When you go to your kids' games, it's it's going to your kids' games with an eye to, how can I be here with gospel intentionality? When you're you're doing your hobbies, whatever you do for for kind of fun in your life, you're doing that in a way where you're saying, how can I leverage that for the gospel? It's in every area of your life. You're going to work, but you're doing that in a new way with gospel intentionality. You're staying at home with your kids in a new way with gospel intentionality. Everything you do in every moment of your life is infused with gospel intentionality. What if we woke up every day and really believe God is going to bring someone in our life today that needs to meet him? It needs to be encouraged in him. God's gonna do that today. And and, you know, next week is Easter, which I think is always an interesting thing in our culture. Easter is a day where we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and all that it means for our life. And it means so much to us, doesn't it? But, But in our culture, it's interesting because a lot of people disconnected from church are gonna find themselves in a church next week. There's still just enough cultural favor where that's going to happen next week. So as Christians, it's an opportunity for us to leverage that for us to talk about Jesus this week, to ask people, where are you going to church next week? Would you come with me next week? And through that conversation, we get to talk about Jesus, right? We get to ask him, how can we pray for him? This is a week that is just, in a lot of ways, I feel like that this seven day period before Easter is Jesus setting on a silver platter conversations. And all we have to do is just be bold enough to ask, have enough courage to ask, to invite, and it opens up the door for those sort of conversations in our life. I mean, I'm just praying this week we would take advantage of that. We would be about the work of that. We would be contending for the faith of the gospel in those sort of ways. And if we need courage this week, that, that we could, in that moment of like, oh, I don't want to do it, I'm, I'm scared. We would just see the Apostle Paul sitting in prison going back to last week. We'd seem suffering for Jesus' sake in a way that's going to be far beyond what our suffering in that moment is going to be of talking about Jesus. And we would be infused with new courage. We would have a fresh zeal and boldness come into us, that God would use his example in that sort of way in our life. So the second way that we can live in a way that's worthy of the gospel is by contending for the gospel. Now, striving for the gospel, though, is going to be costly, and Paul knows that, especially among the church in Philippi. He knows that that's going to be costly for them, that there's going to be opponents there who are going to be actively opposing that. So the last thing he says is, if you want to live worthy of the gospel, we do that by suffering well for Jesus' sake. We do that by suffering well for Jesus' sake. Look at verse 28 and not being frightened in anything by your opponents. He knows that if they're striving and contending for the gospel, that there's gonna be opponents who are gonna come to them to do real harm. They're gonna cause real suffering among the church in Philippi. And he says, here's here's how you can can live worthy. You can suffer in a way that doesn't show fear in that moment, that has confidence in that moment. Why? Because this is gonna be a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He says, when when you are enduring opposition and suffering and you're not frightened, much like Stephen was in Acts 7, right? When when you're not frightened, when there's poise in the midst of that persecution, when there's an it is well in my soul in the midst of that suffering, it's a sign to them that, that ultimately they're on the path to destruction and yet you are on the way to salvation. And I love that last little thing he puts into that verse 28. He says, and that from God. He's just reminding us where our salvation is rooted in. It's not rooted in you and what you have done, but in God and what He has done. It's from God. Now, in verse twenty-nine, Paul imparts to the Philippian church and us a theology of suffering to help us in the middle of our suffering. He's imparting a theology so that when we suffer, we can endure it well. And look what he says in verse twenty-nine: "For it has been granted." That's a huge word. It has been. It's been gifted. To you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear hear that I still have. In verse 28, Paul says, your salvation is from God. And then in verse 29, he says, and surprisingly, your suffering is also from God. Both your salvation and your suffering are gifts from God. He says that suffering, like all things, just like your salvation, sits under the sovereignty of God. Paul is imparting to them a theology of suffering to help them in the midst of their suffering. And counter to the, to the kind of popular prosperity preaching that if you just have enough faith, it's gonna be perfect in your life. No, Paul is saying it's actually a gift of God when suffering enters your life. It's not a lack of faith. It's a, it's a grace. It's a gift from God. Suffering is what Paul Tripp calls an uncomfortable grace. An, an, an uncomfortable grace. It's, it's God taking you where you haven't chosen to go in order to produce in you what you couldn't achieve on your own. That's suffering. It's an uncomfortable grace. I remember listening to Randy Alcorn once talk about suffering. And he said, if you could imagine two pieces of paper in front of you. Paper one, you write the most horrendous moments of suffering in your life. You write them. It's all paper one, it's full of that. Paper two, you write down the, the seasons of your life that had the most spiritual vibrancy. The most in- intimacy with God. You write those down on this side. The most progress in your faith, that's on side two. And then he said, if you laid paper two over paper one, do you know what we would be all astounded to see? How connected our spiritual vibrancy is to our suffering. Right? This is an uncomfortable grace. It's God taking you where you haven't chosen to go in order to produce in you what you couldn't achieve on your own. Look back over your life and over the suffering in your life. Do you see those moments like the Bible does as a grace, as a grace? Not the suffering itself, but, but what God produces in it. And through, do you see it as a grace from Jesus? It's a grace that doesn't go down very easily, right? It's a grace that's hard to, to suck down in the moment, but it's a grace nonetheless. Like when, when the next time you find yourself in the pit and you're in misery, And you're crying out to God, God, where is the grace here? Where is it? I'm waiting on you to visit me with grace. God, when are you going to do it? God is saying to you in that moment, I am visiting you with grace. It's just an uncomfortable grace. But in miserable moments, we're, we're being loved by God. I mean, this is is the point that he's saying here. He's trying to encourage them. He's saying to them, hey, don't allow yourself to be convinced in moments of suffering that God has abandoned you. Don't allow yourself to be convinced that this is a moment showing and proving God's unfaithfulness to you and his inattention to your life. Because it's the exact opposite. It's actually a moment where God is showing you just his zealous love for you. He's showing you in that moment of suffering that he loves you more than you love you that he wants more for your life than you even want for your life. Those moments of misery are moments when we are being loved by God. And he's saying the way that you endure those moments, that is how we live well for Jesus. That's how we reflect the beauty of the doctrine. Let me just say it this way. The the watching world around you is not impressed when a Christian's life goes just the way the Christian wants it and then thanks God for it. No one's impressed by that, right? Who would be impressed by that? You don't have to be a Christian to like that God, right? But the world is impressed when, like Job, your life absolutely falls apart and you can say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'll end with this. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, she wrote a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And she was a... uh, she was a professor at Syracuse, and her kind of, she was a tenured professor, so she was like moving and shaking in this world. And um, her kind of field of choice was called queer studies. She was a lesbian. She, uh, she had no sort of love of God in her life, probably an atheist. She just had no room for God or the thought of God in, in her life. And, uh, and one day the Lord saved her. And I I think she would actually talk about her conversion much like the Apostle Paul does. She she talks about her conversion as a train wreck, as a collision that forever marked her, forever changed her. Just, I mean, on the profoundest levels of her life, it shook down into those places. And in light of her conversion, she suffered horrendously. Professionally, she suffered. There was no longer a place for her in that world right? She suffered there. She, she suffered socially. She suffered because of her conversion. And she shares this one story in her book. She says this, my lesbian neighbor was dying of cancer. And she approached me one day and said, Rosaria, I didn't give a damn about your God while you were in happiness while your life was going the way you want it and you were thanking God for it. I didn't care a bit about your God in that. But now that you're suffering, now that it's costing you something, now that I watch you suffering and still still blessing the name of God, now that I see you suffering, I want to know who is your God? Who is your God? In church, may we be a people who suffer like that, who suffer in a way that makes people say, who is your God? Can we pray together? Let me give you a moment to allow the spirit of God to press into you the things that would be helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be think about the culture of your life, what you do most of the time. Is it reflecting the beauty of the gospel? Is it adorning the gospel? Making it look as precious and as beautiful as it is? And that's not a call to perfection, but it is a call to repentance in areas where we know we're not. Are you proactively fighting for unity? If you've allowed discord to begin to rupture relationships if so this is a this is a god created moment for you to repent to freshly commit to jesus and that proactive fight for unity what is it going to look like for you to proactively fight for that are you contending for the gospel You suffering well for Jesus' sake? God, would you help us today? God, would you help us? We want to be a church whose culture matches our doctrine, who holds our doctrine tightly and works for a culture that's compelling, that adorns that, that beautiful doctrine. So, oh God, make us into that sort of people. Create in us a heart that would pursue that and work for that, striving for that. Oh God, speak to us now. It's in Your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So, we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.